Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Let them eat cake. You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. Because I have a dream. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David White and David it's hard to believe, but summer's almost over. It's slipping away so fast, Neil. I'm not ready for summer to be over. I was just really starting to get used to all this nice warm weather we've been having. It's just been getting great, too. Like, the weather's finally been getting beautiful. It's been really hot out. Next weekend is Labor Day already. It's crazy to believe that that is already here. So we do have a Labor Day quiz at the end of this episode, and uh, the other big news is that we're going to take a week off for Labor Day, so we won't have an episode next week. But don't worry, we got plenty of episode left today. David, are you ready to start? I think I'm ready to start, Neil. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's April 13th, 1645, and Francois-Marie Jacqueline is fighting to defend her husband, Charles de la Tour, governor of Acadia's fort at present-day St. John, New Brunswick, from the forces of Charles Dolnay, also governor of Acadia. Okay, wait, did you say there's two governors of Acadia? Yeah, we might need to give some context for that one. <laughs> that does that does seem confusing. Usually there's only one governor of a place at a time. Uh, maybe take us back and explain for people who don't know, what is Acadia? So Acadia was a French colony on the eastern seaboard of what's now Canada, Nova Scotia, and the provinces of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, roughly. And it was one of the very first European colonies on the North American continent. Okay, so this is a French colony in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. What was going on in Acadia at this time? Well, this is a tumultuous time in both European and therefore in the history of the European colonies in North America. To a large extent, who owns what and where borders are is still being defined. It's not necessarily very strictly fixed yet. This is in the colonies? In the colonies, yes. To give a good example of that, Charles de la Tour, the husband of Francois-Marie Jacqueline, before he ever met her, when he was relatively young, became governor of Acadia. And then David Kirk, a British privateer, seized Quebec City, which would end up being a French colony, and decided to seize Acadia as well, and very nearly succeeded. Indeed, de la Tour ended up controlling briefly the only fort in French hands in North America. But then within 10 years of that period when he was the last French remnant on the North American continent, we would find Louisiana gets founded, 
Quebec City returns to French hands and becomes a major colony of Quebec. Montreal is founded, and Acadia is drastically expanded. Wow, so that's... France was almost wiped right out of North America. They almost weren't a player here, but of course, anyone who's Canadian listening to this will know that France is one of the founding nations of Canada, so obviously they made a big comeback from being down to just one fort. They made a huge comeback, and they were way down. A fun little fact is that De La Tour, when he was holding on to the last French fort in North America, uh, very briefly, as I've said, the man who led the British attack, which tried and failed to seize it, was his father. So his father was fighting for the English, and he was fighting for the French? His father was initially his uh, sea captain who was carrying supplies back and forth between Acadia and France. He got captured by this British privateer, David Kirk, and then he switched sides, was working for Kirk, tried to convince his son to join him and rule Acadia as English governors instead of French ones, got rejected, and then he actually ends up going back, rejoining the French, and having a bunch of fur trade and adventures all along the St. Lawrence, which don't really come into this particular story, but it helps to show how fluid allegiances and borders could be at that time. Yeah, this guy was French, then English, then French. Usually those are like mortal enemies. You wouldn't expect one guy to be fighting for both sides. You wouldn't, but in the colonies, nothing was settled, so... Sometimes things just changed. For example, Charles de la Tour became a hero after holding on to the last fort to withstand the British assault. But then he happened to be a Huguenot, a Protestant in a France that was rapidly becoming more Catholic, uh, more strictly Catholic. And so Cardinal Richelieu, the famous French cardinal who helped to run the French government for a period of time in the 1600s, sent a new governor to Acadia to take over, Isaac de Rosalie. So he didn't like that the governor of Acadia was a Protestant. He wasn't thrilled, so he sent a new one. Well, that's one way to deal with it. But where we get back to the idea of shifting allegiances is that when de Rosalie arrives in Acadia, he turns out to be pretty chill. De La Tour doesn't want to stop being governor, and he just says, that's fine. We can both be governors. We can work together. So is this where we get that two governors conundrum? This is where that starts. There, There's an informal agreement initially that both of them will just be governors of Acadia, sort of. De La Tour is big into the fur trade, and that's his major business. De Rosalie is more into farming and establishing a farming colony so they can work together effectively and make up in some ways for each other's strengths and weaknesses. So they just start working together without really defining who's governor. Well, David, I've never owned a business, but I think most CEOs would tell you that that doesn't usually end up working out so well. You can't have two guys at the top of the organizational pyramid. No, and this sort of ends up being an illustration of that eventually. 
well, DeRosalie is alive. It doesn't really come up. Uh, they both have their separate roles. They work well together. And the elements of friction, they're able to work out between themselves. But when DeRosalie dies, he gets a replacement. And his replacement is Charles Dolnay. Okay, so tell me about Dolnay. So Dolnay wants to grow the colony in Acadia, and especially the farming colony in Acadia. This is his idea of what a colony should be. And he actually is involved with a very good, very impressive uh, portion of the colony of Acadia, um, their famous dikes. He reclaims a lot of land from um, the ocean. De Rosalie actually started this, but Dolnay really expands it and then farms on it. And this is very good because it helps to take them out of competing with the local Mi'kmaq tribes for land and instead cooperating because they're actually creating new land. Okay, so at the time in Canada, was this... How was the economy set up? Was there a lot of farming and this idea of, you know, settling down, having the dikes and, and doing this farming? Or was it more of that wilderness and the fur trapping, which I gather is what was sort of the other side of this economy? Well, it's interesting. The French government really views sustainable economy. That was a common economic idea at the time linked to a philosophic group known as the physiocrats. But in practice, on the ground level in Canada, fur trading was just so much more profitable that a lot of people who went to Canada thinking that they were going to be farmers and establish farms would switch over, would decide, I want to go work in the fur trade because I'm going to make a lot more money. Well, fair enough. Who doesn't want to make a lot more money? It's a reasonable kind of thing. So a lot of colonies end up having both some farming and some fur trading, which is a sustainable sort of economy. But for Acadia, where they've sort of informally divided up these two functions between two separate governors, that's immediately a major source of friction, especially because Dolnay is spending a lot of money creating major public works. These dikes that are reclaiming land from the oceans are not cheap to build. And he wants to see his cut of the fur trading money. And there is sort of a profit-sharing kind of agreement that was established between de Latour and de Rosalie. But it's a little vague, and nobody can agree on exactly how things are supposed to be split and how they're supposed to be verified. And so when de Latour and Dolnay start to interact more as governors now that they're both the governors of the colony, it rapidly reaches a point where there's tension and men who are employed by either of the two governors are fighting on the streets and it's not good. There's tensions flaring and something needs to be done. Yeah, it does seem like they really set this up 
poorly with all these informal agreements and, uh, you know, nobody really knowing who's in charge. So does this come to a head, David? They're not unreasonable people just because they're having a dispute. So they do what reasonable people do in a situation where the line of leadership isn't clear. They ask someone higher up in the organization. And since in this organization is the Kingdom of France and they're both independent governors, the only person who's higher up than they are is the king, Louis Thirteenth. So they're going to go ask King Louis Thirteenth to mediate this dispute in the colonies. Exactly. So they send their problems to Louis Thirteenth, and Louis Thirteenth and his ministers send back their solution. Now, we should have a little sympathy for Louis Thirteenth and his ministers. The colonies are far away. They don't know very much of what's actually happening. And most importantly, their maps are not very good. <laughs> I mean, looking back on it from our perspective in history, you know, with transatlantic communications, I can communicate with anyone in the world in seconds with my phone. And, you know, maps, we have GPS, we have all of this technology. So everything is a lot easier for us with technology to see what's going on on the other side of the world. I get news from France all the time, but in those days, in the 1600s, we didn't have GPS, we didn't have this communication, all communication had to go over a boat and it took all this time, right? So it must have been a lot harder for the king and his ministers in France to know what was going on in his colonies. So the king and his ministers have the idea that what they should do is split the colony in two and give one half to each of the claimant governors and then just, you know, let them both run their half of the colony however they want, which isn't necessarily a terrible idea. But as I've mentioned, the king doesn't have very good maps. His line dividing up the colony is kind of unclear. It's a description he sends and it's not exactly clear to anybody where that line is actually supposed to be given how the ground actually looks versus how the map looked in Paris. And neither governor is at all happy with the idea of losing some of their territories, which both of them would have to give up some territory with this, with this division. So this isn't exactly the wise King Solomon dividing the baby to figure things out here. This isn't going to work out, this division. It's not going to work out. The compromise falls apart almost as soon as it was established. So, of course, De La Tour does the rational, measured, responsible thing. He sails to Boston, hires a bunch of mercenaries, sails back to Port Royal, the capital of Acadia, now Annapolis Royal in Nova Scotia, and attacks Dolnay's fort. It seems like a reasonable measure. If you have a dispute, go to Boston, get some thugs from Boston, and go try to attack somebody. But it turns out to be less of a brilliant idea than he'd hoped. The mercenaries they hired in Boston are very happy to sack any houses that are outside the walls of the fort and mills any kind of outbuildings where they can seize things. But when he asks them to actually attack the walls of the fort in order to seize Dolnay and 
end this before it starts, they're not really willing to take the risk of assaulting a fortified position. That seems really dangerous. So they refuse, and he can't really do anything to make them because they're the armed members of his expedition here. So they sail back to Boston, having seized some local valuables, but otherwise just having drastically escalated this dispute into a war. Oh, geez. It's all about the quality of your mercenaries, I guess. You want to get ones who are actually in for the fight and uh, not just in it for a little bit of looting and then get out of Dodge. So what does Dolnay do in response? Well, Dolnay has two separate responses. The first one is he starts raising troops immediately from around the colony to fight for him. He can't go to the New England colonies the way that de la Tour can to hire mercenaries because he's not popular with them because he's been very aggressive about enforcing taxes and tariffs on anybody who's trying to do some trade with his colony because he was trying to raise money before now. Whereas de la Tour, who was big in the fur trade, was very casual about allowing people to dodge tariffs and dodge import and export taxes in order to encourage more trading of furs from his holdings. So de la Tour is very popular in New England and in Boston especially, whereas they hate Dolnay. Let's maybe not pass this lesson on to modern politicians that if you let people dodge taxes you'll be popular but i can see why it worked out that way so dolnay is trying to raise his troops locally but he also has another move he sends a ship to france to meet the king to get de la tour declared a traitor and to request that france send some troops to end this dispute Nice and quick. Oh man, don't go crying to daddy. That's like such a cheap move. Cheap move or not, de la Tour needs to respond. And that's where Françoise Marie Jacqueline enters our story. She's de la Tour's second wife, actually. He was married to a unnamed Micmac woman. Uh, there's just no record of what her name was, which is tragic. But he was married to her while he was fighting his father back in the war with the British, but that's ended somehow. Again, the records are very patchy. And then he wrote to France and requested a wife, and his agent in France sent him one. And so Francois-Marie Jacqueline, his wife, is associated with the government in Paris, knows the court, so he sends her to France as soon as he hears that he's been declared a traitor to get his name cleared in Paris. Old school Tinder. You write to France and they send you a wife. That's a bit different. Things work differently for noblemen in the period. And one thing about uh, all the French colonies is that they really worked on a more aristocratic sense of how things should be run than the English or the Dutch colonies along North America. Okay, so does his wife have any luck with her connections in france she does she's successful she gets him declared not a traitor she sails back to acadia 
there's some skirmishing between Dolnay and De La Tour, but as soon as Dolnay learns that the declaration that De La Tour is a traitor that he got passed has been rescinded, he sends another one of his agents back to France to get De La Tour declared a traitor again. Jeez, Dave, this sounds like us squabbling when we were kids, running back and forth to mom and dad. It's the same principle, writ a little bit larger. And for Dolnay, it works out. The king changes his mind yet again, and De La Tour is a traitor again, and therefore he's sending his wife right back to France in order to try and fix it. What a weird feeling for De La Tour. You've been a traitor, then you're not a traitor, now you're a traitor again. You're kind of flip-flopping back and forth. Like I say, things aren't as settled in this period as we're used to thinking of them as, you know, remaining firm and static. Things can change at the drop of a hat. But this time they don't. Francois-Marie arrives in Paris, but this time all of her contacts don't avail her anything. The king is firm in his decision now. He's not rescinding his orders that De La Tour be arrested. But he's also not willing to send any troops out to Acadia to deal with this, because this is all, after all, only a minor colonial squabble, and France has bigger problems. Fair enough, I guess. So these guys are going to have to fight this out on their own. Well, not quite on their own. Francois-Marie Jacqueline, in Paris, her husband just declared a traitor, is told that she's no longer allowed to leave the country. But instead of just accepting that and staying there, she flees in disguise to England, hires a ship's captain to take her to Fort de la Tour, present-day St. John, New Brunswick, and begins sailing across the Atlantic to get back to her husband. That's a pretty high level of dedication for what was essentially an arranged marriage. It is, and it's about to get more dramatic. As she nears uh, Acadia, the ship's captain who she hired decides that he doesn't want to go where he promised to go. Instead, he wants to fish off the Grand Banks for a while. And while he's doing that, Dolnay's ship, Dolnay has a few ships actually, one of Dolnay's ships, shows up and inspects the British vessel and charges it all of the taxes and tariffs that it are appropriate. And the whole time, Jacqueline is hiding below decks, avoiding the inspectors, and the British crew are trying to pretend that they're just ordinary fishermen and certainly aren't hiding the wife of the guy currently at war with the group of people currently inspecting their ship and they get away with it but the ship's captain now is so spooked that he decides he's going to Boston instead because he's not happy with all these Acadians. Wow that's some high drama there uh, smuggling the wife in and the enemy troops right on board the boat so she ends up in Boston not St. John's where she wanted to be. She does and she's not happy so she goes to ordinary legal recourse. She goes to the courts in Boston and sues the ship's captain on the grounds that he failed to follow his contract with her. 
Seems like she'd have a good case. She's got a solid case. She wins. She wins 2,000 pounds, which was quite a bit of money at the time. And she uses it to hire a group of mercenaries, outfit two ships, and sail to Acadia to bring a group of mercenaries to help her husband. This is a very resourceful woman. I think uh, he really lucked out on the right to France and get a wife lottery. He got amazingly lucky. And there's astonishingly little reliable information about her life other than specifically what she was doing during this, the Acadian Civil War. Dolnay wrote his own description of what was going on. And he describes her as the daughter of a barber who became a disreputable actress in Paris before she went on to do all this, which to modern sensibilities actually sounds pretty cool, but he was probably a little bit biased. Other sources describe her as either the daughter of a minor nobleman or a successful businessman or maybe a doctor, but it's not really clear how she ended up becoming who she turned out to be. Who knows, but she obviously had some fire in her blood and some real courage behind her to do all this stuff for her husband in this civil war. So does the mercenaries she's gotten in Boston help out her husband? Not very much. The war's sort of stalemated. She doesn't have enough mercenaries with her to seize Port Royal. And without being able to go on to the offensive, De La Tour thinks it's not enough. So he decides to take the bulk of his forces and head back to to Boston to try and raise an army that he can actually use to strike Port Royal and seize it and end the war. But while he's away doing that, Dolnay gets word that he's left his base with the bulk of his forces. And therefore, Dolnay seizes the initiative, takes his, his army, and attacks Fort de la Tour. Uh-oh, that can't be good for de la Tour. He uh, left, and while he's gone, he gets attacked. Indeed. And he's left his wife behind in charge. Well, of the people he could have left behind in charge, she does seem like a very resourceful woman and probably a good choice to be in charge. She certainly does. And in spite of the fact that she's outnumbered and not necessarily in a great position in terms of food or supplies, she decides to fight it out and she holds the wall the first day. The Acadians under Dolnay attack, and she drives them back. And then the second and third days, they're besieging her and attacking her occasionally, but she holds on. Wow, what a great job she's doing there. But unfortunately, the fourth day is Easter Sunday that year, Easter Sunday, 1645. And Dolnay has managed, according to a, mem a diarist, Nicholas Denise, who was there, has managed to get in contact with one of the mercenaries, men in the wall, one of the sentries, and convinced him not to sound the alarm for the next attack in return, of course, for money. So on the fourth day, Dolnay's men finally managed to breach the wall 
and there's more fighting in the courtyard of Fort de la Tour. Easter Sunday, don't tell me this guy sold out for 30 pieces of silver, a Judas inside the Acadian walls. So Dolne has finally got his opportunity to break through the defenses. He has. And now that he's inside the walls, he lets out one last demand uh, that she surrender, and in return, he'll spare the lives of all her troops. And she agrees. Well, it does seem like a poor way for it to end for such a hard fighter as she was. But on the other hand, I can understand wanting to save the lives of your men. Unfortunately, Dolnay was lying. Oh, no. He executes them all. He leaves one man alive, but he requires that that man be the one who executes all the others. Wow, that's a real power move, and that's... uh pretty brutal way to treat your defeated enemies according to the records he doesn't execute Francoise Marie Jacqueline but she doesn't last three weeks after that so that in a military sense is the end of the Acadian Civil War he's Dolnay has now seized all of the relevant portions of Acadia and Charles de la Tour ends up fleeing to Quebec, where he lives in exile. So Dolnay has won the Acadian Civil War. Is that the end of our story, David? Well, not quite. And the dramatic twist is surprisingly Canadian. Oh, good. I do love Canadian stories. So Charles Dolnay, as mentioned, is very big on raising taxes and tariffs and enforcing the laws. So he ends up being a very uh, mobile governor of Acadia, moving back and forth between various towns and places where fur trade posts, for example, places where trade goes on, in order to uh, make sure that everything's being run properly. And in 1650, he's heading back to Port Royal after a, another of these expeditions, which he frequently does, traveling by canoe as he usually does, when his canoe overturns, and in the icy cold waters of the North Atlantic, Charles Dulnay drowns. The Tom Thompson ending. That's an unfortunate way to go, being overturned in a canoe on the North Atlantic. And so Charles de la Tour gets a ship in Quebec and heads for Port Royal to add one dramatic ending to this otherwise already over Acadian Civil War. But he's not shipping an army or a team of assassins or anything like that. He has a different plan. What's his plan? He has a marriage proposal. He's a widower. But now he's showing up to get married for a third time to Jean Motin, previously the wife of Charles Dolnay, and critically, his heir. So he's going to marry his enemy's wife to win back his colony. That is exactly what he does, Neil. And it works. He unifies Acadia and for four years is the sole governor of Acadia. De La Tour sure knows how to marry well. He does. Well, David... 
that's an incredible story about a civil war in Canada before it was Canada that you probably never even heard of. It is. And it's only the start of the dramatic history of Acadia just four years after Dolnay or after De La Tour becomes sole governor of Acadia it will be conquered by Robert Sedgwick a British general but Sedgwick is working for Oliver Cromwell who was then uh, the head of government in England but when Charles II comes back to the throne replacing Oliver Cromwell He's so determined to rip up everything that Cromwell did that De La Tour will have another chance to get Acadia back. But that will just start the ball rolling on almost a century of conflict between the British and the French. But perhaps never quite as interesting as when the lines were so blurred as to who was working with whom as they were during the Acadian Civil War. A very interesting Canadian story, and definitely there's a lot of interesting history in Acadia and that whole region of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Very, very interesting. Thanks for telling us about this, David. I was absolutely delighted to research this episode, Neil. It was great. All right, we did mention off the top that next week is Labor Day, and so we do have a Labor Day quiz for you, David. you want to take a shot at it? All right, I'm game to give it a try. Five questions for you here in our Labor Day quiz. First one, in Canada and the United States, Labor Day is celebrated on the first Monday in September. That's next week if you're listening to this podcast as it was posted. Which country marks Labor Day on May 23rd? May 23rd. I'll give you a hint. It's a Caribbean country. Caribbean. My goodness. Ah, I'll guess Cuba. It's actually Jamaica where they have Labor Day on May 23rd, although a good guess with Cuba and their um, socialist history. But yeah, Jamaica, May 23rd, they have their Labor Day, so they get a head start on the rest of us. Let's go back to Canada. The first Labor Day parade in Canada took place in 1872 in what city? Perhaps Montreal? It was actually Toronto, the other big city, and that's where it got its start in Canada in 1872. Parliament in Canada officially recognized Labor Day as a holiday in what year? <sighs> Remember, it started in 1872. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. I will just take a complete guess and say 1894. You've got to be kidding. You're correct. 1894. There's no way that's absolutely correct. absolutely correct. Good guess there, David. There's no 1894. Way. So uh, it started with a the first Labor Day parade in Canada took place in 1872, but Parliament officially recognized Labor Day in 1894. That was the government of Sir John Thompson. He was the prime minister at the time. In the U.S., David, which U.S. president passed the bill that officially recognized Labor Day? Hmm. Perhaps President Taft? Good guess. It was actually President Grover Cleveland, which is just a great name. I love the name Grover Cleveland. 
Imagine a guy being named Grover Cleveland being the president of the United States. All right, David, one last easy question for you here. Uh, Wisdom states that people should avoid doing this after Labor Day. Traditionally, I believe you should not wear white after Labor Day. Absolutely correct. Don't wear white after Labor Day. Some people say that that's because white is a summer color and so it shouldn't be worn after the holiday that marks the end of summer. But another explanation is that white was a status symbol for wealthy people who wore that color while on summer vacation. So it shouldn't be worn after a day dedicated to the working class like Labor Day, which is kind of interesting to me uh, why you shouldn't wear white after Labor Day. So thanks for playing along with my uh, Labor Day quiz, David. Well, I was happy to, and evidently I need to learn a little bit more about labor history. Although you did pretty great guessing 1894, the year that Parliament officially recognized Labor Day in Canada. Well, that was a lot of fun. We're taking next week off for Labor Day, but if you want to get a hold of us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, our handle is at WhenArtThou. By email, you can get us OBrotherWhenArtThou at Outlook.com. And of course, this podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our website is obrother.ca. Thanks for listening.